you, Sylvia. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 26. The 26th chapter of Proverbs. Tonight we'll continue our study through the book of Proverbs. And we've reached the point that I knew was coming where I thought it would be profitable to switch from straight exposition verse by verse all the way through the book to a more topical study. And that's because of the repetitive nature of many of the same themes in Proverbs. Perhaps a better preacher could preach straight through and not lose your attention, but alas, you are stuck with me. And so we're going to jump to a more topical approach, um, and I think that will be fruitful for us. Previously, we studied the topic of money and finances over the course of two different sermons, and tonight I thought we'd tackle a related subject, and that is diligence, hard work, work ethic, and laziness, sluggardliness, slothfulness. And when I was asked, several people uh, asked me this week, asking what sermon topic, what would my sermon be about this week, and I said about laziness and about work, and they said, ugh, can't wait to hear that. That's going to sting. And I, I take these comments to mean that there's something universal about how we all feel about work. It's almost like a perpetual guilt treadmill, right? That you could always be working harder. You've never done enough, which is not right, by the way. Um, so my goal tonight is not to blast a bunch of slothful people in the church and to turn them into Christianized workaholics. That's just as sinful. Maybe I'll do another sermon about the pride of workaholism another time. But tonight, my aim is for us to see how laziness is missing the mark of what we've been designed to do. And how Christ has perfectly hit that mark. We know that we're all tempted to be sluggards. We're tempted to be lazy people. And when we see the marks of a lazy person. And line those marks up next to Christ. We'll begin to see in him a beauty. A virtue. Something irresistible within him. And we'll become drawn to him. And we'll over time begin to be like him. And be less like the sluggard. And so that's my aim tonight, is to show us laziness and all of its comedic tragedy we see in Proverbs. But to show us Christ and all of his virtuous glory and all of his wisdom. And by helping us see Christ propel us into imitating him. And so if you haven't already, please turn to Proverbs 26. Our main text will be verses 13 through 16. But I'll begin reading at verse 12 for reasons that will become apparent shortly. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray. Father, I am aware that this is a topic that might be guilt driven people might be motivated by guilt into 
working hard, and that's the last thing I want. Convict us by your word, by your Holy Spirit's leading. Show us our sin, not merely so that we can stay there, but so that we can go to Christ, that we can be forgiven and washed, that we can be made more into the image of your Son and less in the image of the sluggard. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at Proverbs and examining the description of a sluggard. The description of a sluggard. We'll be moving back and forth in this passage. We'll be looking at other parts of Proverbs. But the overall picture we have of a sluggard is both comedic and tragic. Right? It is kind of comical the way he's portrayed. But it's in the end terrifying and tragic. A sluggard, that's an old word that means a lazy person, an indolent person, an idle person, a slothful person, someone that can't be bothered and doesn't want to move. And that's what we're first told about the sluggard. It says in verse 14 that the sluggard is hinged to his bed. The sluggard is hinged to his bed. Verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard turn on his bed. And this graphic imagery shows us in a very short sentence more meaning than we might catch on the very first reading of the text. We have a man, as it were, bolted to his bed. He's happy in his restful position. He's in love with his ease. He can't be bothered to get up and get dressed. He's sleepy, right? You go in, you poke him with a stick, you turn the alarm on. He says, no, not yet. Oh, just a few, just five more minutes. I'll come down. I'll be down for breakfast in a minute. I'm I just, just, just a little bit more. Just so, he just, he just rolls over. Just a few more minutes. I'm so tired. It can't be morning yet. Perhaps you've lived with someone like this. I know that I have, because it was me as a teenager, especially. Just wanted to roll over. I would see each day. How late I could set my alarm and still be on time for school, right? Today I'm going to try 7.46, right? That was me. He doesn't want to get out of bed. He doesn't have any desire to get out of bed. He seems hung upon it, just like a door hangs on its hinges. The desire for bodily ease and comfort when too often indulged, is the sad occasion for all sorts of problems. And we'll continue as we see the description of the sluggard. We'll see that those that love sleep prove in the end to have loved their own death, their own demise. That's true physically. It's true spiritually. The sluggard is hinged to his bed, but he's not only hinged. Notice also that the sluggard is hopeless at finishing tasks. He's hopeless at finishing tasks. Verse 15 says that the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. And here we have an absolute silly picture of a man. We finally, the sluggard has finally extricated himself from the comfort of his bed, right? He's pulled himself off his own hinges. He finally makes his way to the breakfast table. He probably hasn't brushed his teeth yet. His, his hair is still a mess. He hasn't showered. He hasn't combed his hair. It's somewhere between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. when sluggards rise. 
And he walks into the room, he yawns, he rubs his eyes, and he says he's hungry. He goes to the cupboard, he gets his Cheerios, he pours a bowl, he puts milk on it. He plunges his spoon in and he says, you know, I wanted some cereal, but I'm kind of tired. I don't, I don't think I want it anymore. It's comical and tragic. The utter foolishness of someone having everything that he needs for his life and for his flourishing, but refuses to engage. He'd rather starve than exert himself. He likes his comfort and his laziness more than eating, which is why we're told that laziness over and over leads to death. He's the kind of man, if we, if we take it back to the agrarian culture of the day, he's the kind of man who finally goes out on a hunt, right? His wife has been prodding him. You need to get us some food. So he finally goes out. He says, I'll get to it. And he gets himself a bird. And he brings it home. But he doesn't feel like cleaning it and cooking it. I'll get around to it. And he leaves it out there on the table outside. And it just rots. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't finish anything. He'd rather starve himself than strain himself. It's also worth noticing that sometimes this kind of sluggardly heart can manifest itself in what appears to be busyness. Sometimes sluggards can appear busy, which is counterintuitive at first. He can look busy, but he's never actually finished. He may always appear to be finishing something, but he never actually finishes a task, right? You ask him, have you finished that paper yet? Yeah, almost done. Have you done that project I asked you to do? Yeah, I'll get it to you by the end of the day, boss. No problem. Did you do that chore from last week, son? No, I'm, I'm nearly done. He's always working, he says. He always says that he's busy, but he never finishes what he's been given. Right? He's like a door that turns on its hinges. There's motion, there's movement, but there's no progress. He's bolted to the bed. He acts like he's busy. He acts like he's going somewhere. He acts like he's preparing a meal. He buries his hand in the dish, but he never actually eats. He never actually finishes. He's always starting something, always picking up something new, always distracted by what is new, what is sparkly around him. But he's not disciplined enough to finish the responsibilities that he's been given. He never follows through. He's unreliable. He's an employer's nightmare, right? Sluggards can appear busy, but they never actually finish. Are we finishers? Do we finish the tasks that we've been given? You can imagine a golfer who's standing at the tee box of a 450-yard par 4. Right? He drives well off the tee, places the ball gently on the green with his approach shot. He puts well and gets right next to the hole. And just when you think, He's about to put in for par. He stops. He says, you know what? I've gone 499 yards. That's a long way. I think I'll be done here. Put the clubs up. Why would you do that? 
No one would think that was wise. And why should we do that in our life? The sluggard is hopeless at finishing tasks. Third, not only is the sluggard hinged to his bed and hopeless at finishing tasks, the sluggard is the master of excuses. The master of excuses. Verse 13 tells us the sluggard says there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. I can't get out of bed. I can't go to work. There's a lion outside. He always has some excuse, which as this proverb illustrates, is not constrained by idiocy. Son, go out and get the trash cans from the road, please. I can't do that. There's a lion out there. He might eat me. And what would you do, Dad, if I got eaten by a lion? Think of all the guilt that you would feel, Dad, if I got eaten by that lion. In fact, it's probably best that you go get the trash cans, Dad. I want to protect you from the possibility of that guilt that you might feel if I had been actually eaten by lions. Really, I'm loving you by letting you go get the trash cans, Dad. Right? Parents, have you ever heard your children engage in these kinds of excuses? Right? They'll come to you maybe three days into summer vacation. I'm bored. Really? You know there's some laundry that needs to be folded. Grass needs to be cut. The leaves need to be raked. And as soon as you give them multiple viable options to cure their boredom, they suddenly remember something that they have to go do real quick. Right? Oh, I, I got to go uh, finish something up in my room. Right? I need to go get this off my plate before I do those things you just said. In fact, I can't do that chore. It would be unfair to my siblings if I left no chores undone for them. Right? I don't want to hog all the fun. So uh, I'll just not do that, Dad. Right? And we do this too. It's not just children. Yes, you know, yesterday was a hard, that was a long day. I'm going to, I deserve to sleep in a little bit. You know, God will forgive me. I, I'm just going to skip my Bible reading and prayer time to today. And while it may be not necessarily sinful in that moment, it is not hard to find us in a pattern where we keep doing that, right? Boy, it felt good to get that extra 30 minutes yesterday. I think, I think I'm going to do that again. And we're like the sluggard. We can be hinged to our bed, moving back and forth, but making no real progress in our spiritual life. There's a lion in the streets, right? I can't get to where the streets, right? That's the place of business. That's where transactions happen. That's the marketplace. I can't go there. Excuses, excuses. The sluggard is the master of excuses. Fourth, the sluggard is always hungry for fulfillment, but is never satisfied. The sluggard is always hungry, craving fulfillment, but he's never satisfied. Verse 15, again, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Right? He has enough hunger in his stomach to motivate him to prepare the dish, right? And to slam his hand in the food, but he is foolish enough to stop there. He wants to be fulfilled. He wants a full stomach. He wants satisfaction and satiation, but he will never be there, for he's too indolent, too lazy to even bring the satisfaction-providing substance back to his mouth. 
right? He's hinged to his bed, hinged to his own demise. He's always tossing and turning, flipping and flopping back and forth. He's craving rest and comfort, but he never gets it. Right? It's often the laziest man that always says that he's tired. He's always craving more rest. His heart desperately craves that rest and leisure, but it always eludes him. He's never satisfied. It's because as we get older, we start to learn that the key to a good night's rest is a clean conscience and a hard day's work. And the sluggard has neither. He doesn't have a hard day's work, and so his body is punishing him with discomfort and elusive sleep. And he doesn't have a clean conscience because he knows he's been useless. We were designed for fruitfulness and for productivity. We were designed for work. And when we grate against the grain of God's creation, it bears bad fruit, which in this case is unfulfilled desires. We could go on in this, but I'll let you continue that theme on your own. The sluggard is always hungry for fulfillment, but never satisfied. Fifth, the sluggard is haughty in his own eyes. The sluggard is haughty in his own eyes. He's prideful. Verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Right? The lazy man's laziness makes complete sense to him. He has marshaled all sorts of self-convincing reasons to justify his behavior. He, figures, he has figured out, he thinks, the key to learning and to earning in this life without any inconvenient exertion. I'm not lazy, he says. I'm just smarter than all you guys out there because I've figured out how to work smarter and not harder. But he has a huge blind spot. Right? He thinks himself a genius, and he will not be persuaded even if seven wise men are speaking to him. What could he possibly learn from them, he thinks? I've already got it all figured out. And he'll even mock those hardworking people around him. Right? Look at those idiots, slaving away all summer long with their plowing and their planting of seeds. They're breaking their backs during the hottest part of the year. What are they thinking? If only they were as smart as me sitting over here in my rocking chair sipping my sweet tea. Right? Little does he consider that only those who faithfully sow will be able to reap at the appropriate time. The sluggard is haughty in his own eyes. Sixth and finally... When we look at the sluggard's life, we see that the sluggard is defenseless. The sluggard is defenseless. If you flip back a couple of pages to chapter 24, the end of chapter 24, we'll see that Solomon, right, the epitome of the wise man, is walking past the field of a lazy man. And he sees a great lesson, which is how... It often goes, right? To borrow an old quote, wise men profit more from fools than fools do from wise men because wise men can look at the fool and see their folly and avoid it, but fools do not follow the virtue of a wise man. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34, 
I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw, and I thought about it. And I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. The house of the sluggard appears, from the road at least, to be abandoned. The yard is all overgrown. It's full of thorns and thistles. The stone walls are broken down. He's got no wall, no protection. He's exposed, exposed to the the elements and exposed to theft, to thieves, to robbers. There's a parable here about our spiritual defenses. But for now, let's just notice that the laziness of the sluggard has exposed him. And he's defenseless. And how does it come, right? It doesn't come in big chunks. It doesn't come in huge commitments. A little sleep. A little slumber. Just five minutes here. Five minutes there. A little bit more of folding the hands. And slowly that pattern grows. That's how laziness can hit us. And so having analyzed a little bit of the description of a sluggard, we must note in the final analysis that laziness is not merely an infirmity, right? It's not merely bad for business. It's not just bad for our health. It's not merely a curse for our employer. It's not merely bad for our protection. Laziness is a sin. Laziness is a sin. We were made to work. And thus imitate God. Exodus 20, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not work, neither you nor your daughter, male servant, female servant, your animals, the foreigner residing in your towns. Why? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Our contemporary quest for leisure feeds on laziness and on indolence. We want to take that six, the six days, and compress it to the smallest number we can. And we want to take that one day and make it all about me, all about my comfort. Man is so stubborn in his laziness that Proverbs tells us he won't even go to nature and see the Parables of diligence played out. He won't go look at the ant and consider the lessons to be learned. For your homework, you can read Proverbs 6 and see that even nature is proclaiming the virtues of hard work and diligence. So what do we do when we're confronted with our sluggardly tendencies? Right? Do we buckle down? We, we resolve to do better? We get, some new, we get a new planner? That's going to solve our problems. We just schedule things better. Right? What do we do? Is the faithful Christian supposed to be so driven and so industrious that we just work ourselves to exhaustion all the time? Is that the the option? No, faithful Christianity does not hide behind workaholism, right, and call it doing all things to the glory of God, right? I I went to school with all sorts of guys at seminary that so well, I'll, I'll, I'll die when the Great Commission's done, right? I'm, but I'm going to work until then. Like, you are going to burn yourself out before the end of the semester, right? 
In their arrogance, they thought they could work and work and work and work and work. That's not how it works either. We don't swing from doing nothing to only working all the time. No, the solution for both the sluggard and the workaholic is to see Jesus as their Savior. Right? We have to see the Christ of Scriptures. What did he do? What did he teach? And how does Christ compare to the sluggard? Let's do that. Let's examine the sluggard and Christ side by side. You see, first, the sluggard was hinged to his bed. There was maybe some movement, but he wasn't going anywhere. There was no progress. But Christ, he took action, and he came down. Christ took action. He came down, and he was resolute in his action. Isaiah 50, 6 and 7 speaks of his determination in this way. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me. I offered my cheeks to those that pulled my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be put to shame. He set his face like flint, which is a phrase saying that he is firm in his conviction. He was stone-faced in his constancy. He was unshakable in his resolution. Christ came and took action for his people. He wasn't like the sluggard who just flopped around in his bed. Similarly, remember that although the sluggard was hopeless to finish his tasks, Christ finished his. Christ finished his. He is a finisher. He walked in perfect obedience to the Father. He fulfilled the very heart of the law in every jot and tittle. He bore every ounce of punishment that his people deserved. And what did he proclaim when his work was done? It is finished. There is nothing left to do. He didn't leave a little bit of the law undone, a little bit left for us to do, right? He didn't get all the way up to the hole, 499 yards, and then stop. He did it all. He didn't complete our justification, but leave our sanctification and glorification up to our faithfulness. He did it all. He doesn't start what he will not see to completion. Furthermore, remember that although the sluggard was the master of excuses, Christ took personal responsibility, even at great cost to himself. Christ took personal responsibility, even at great cost to himself. Knowing the mission that was before him, Christ did not delegate out the hard work, right? His mission was not beneath him. It was not unworthy of his time. He engaged the work head on. He didn't make excuses for any inaction on his part. He personally engaged in the task assigned to him. And he precisely, even tediously, merited every necessary aspect. And he underwent the whole plan with sacrificial love and joy. Rather than excusing the the smallest of self-gratification along the way. Which leads to the next point of comparison. Remember that although the sluggard was hungry for fulfillment, Christ willingly forwent fulfillment. The sluggard was hungry for fulfillment, but Christ willingly forwent fulfillment. The sluggard craves and craves. He desires in all of his heart to have his longings met, and he will never attain any of them. But Christ had both the means and the right 
to have all of his human desires fulfilled, right? He could have had all the praise and glory of men. He could have had riches and power. He could have had prestige and fame. He could have had all the delicious delicacies that his human stomach could ever have wanted. All of the fleshly comfort that any man could dream of, but he willingly laid those aside, right? He forwent all of those good things. He had no place to lay his head, we're told in the Gospels. He didn't have a mansion. He didn't have a pricey palace. He had no butler waiting on his stomach's every whim. In fact, he went 40 days in the desert with nothing, succeeding where Israel never could. He could have had royal robes and kingly vestments, but instead he allowed himself to be stripped naked on the cross. He could have had a jewel-laden crown made of gold, but instead he had a crown of thorns. The sluggard is always hungry for fulfillment, but Christ willingly let that go. He forwent fulfillment for the sake of his people. Which flows into the next point. Although the, pro, the, the sluggard is prideful, right? He's the smartest man he knows. Christ instead is meek and lowly of heart. Although the sluggard is prideful and he's the smartest man he knows, Christ is meek and lowly of heart. That's how Jesus describes himself in stark contrast with the Pharisees in Matthew 11. Meek and lowly of heart. Gentle. Likewise, in Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus willingly emptied himself and took on human form, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't consider himself more important than everyone else. He trusted his Father in all of life and death. He was not haughty in his own eyes, unlike the sluggard who's never met a man as smart as him. Finally, remember that although the sluggard's home is broken down and defenseless, Christ's possessions are secure. Although the sluggard's home is broken down and he's defenseless, Christ's possessions are secure. The sluggard has let thorns and thistles overgrow all over his property. He's let his stone walls cave in. He's defenseless against robbers and thieves, against wolves, against lions. He's vulnerable. He's exposed. He's helpless against a strong man who could come in and bind him. But Scripture tells us that Christ has come in and bound the strong man, right? He has disarmed the ruler of this age. He's not frightened about a lion in the streets, but has gone straight out to war against the devil, whom Scripture calls a prowling lion. Christ has defeated him. And his victory is assured by his resurrection. And because he has defeated our greatest foe, we can trust him when he says that his possessions are secure. Right? What, what are his possessions? John's gospel tells us that nothing can snatch his sheep from his father's hand. Nothing. Because Christ was diligent and faithful to his task. Rather than being lazy, he has sufficiently and efficaciously protected his house from the attacks of the evil one. And we, he will assuredly and effectually protect us, his possessions, from theft and destruction. 
He is the faithful shepherd. Do you see how Christ is the opposite of the sluggard in every way? He has worked for his people. He is motivated by love. And do you love him for that sacrifice? Can you trust a Savior like that? I can. I commend him to you. And I hope that if you have not yet repented of your sins, that you will trust in him this very night. He calls you to forsake your sin and to run to him, to take on his yoke, to become his student, his disciple, and to learn from him. And so as I conclude tonight, I want to make a few final exhortations, a few application points in light of what we've learned about the sluggard and what we've learned about Christ. And I promise I did not talk to Pastor Brandon about this before I wrote this sermon. But it's about a lot of the things that we prayed for earlier. First, we have to be sure that we're not like the sluggard and let the walls break down and the weeds grow up in our marriages. We have to make sure we're not like the sluggard in our marriage and let the walls break down and let the weeds grow up. And I am preaching to myself here as much as I am to anyone. This is hard. Men especially, we need to hear this. Because if you're anything like me, you're tempted to coast and assume everything is fine until something breaks. Right? I don't go around my house routinely inspecting all the plumbing pipes, respecting every wire. I assume it all works until something breaks. And that's how I'm tempted to be in my marriage. But marriages aren't like that. Marriages are like gardens. Right? They need constant tending. We have to weed. We have to trim and pluck. We have to water. We have to nurture and care for our marriages. Right? Or we'll wake up one day after a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and thorns and thistles are everywhere in our marriage. Christ acted with initiative-taking love to protect his spouse. And we must be diligent and faithful, vigilant to do the same. We mustn't let ourselves become slothful in our marriages. Second, parents, do not excuse laziness in your children. Parents, do not excuse laziness in your children. Because if we do, they're the ones that are going to suffer the consequences. They're the ones that will reap the fruit. And if we let them do that early, and they set patterns, they get ingrained in, in a pattern of laziness, it will be so hard for them to change out of that later on. A work ethic is something that children naturally hate. Right? It takes no effort for me to get my children to play. But it's pulling teeth. To teach a young one to work hard. To go the extra mile. But these things will increasingly become to distinguish the people of God. As our culture continues to slide towards idolizing leisure and recreation. Right? As the culture increasingly bows to leisure. And to play. And to recreation. The people of God will increasingly become strange because they work hard, right? Historians talk about the Protestant work ethic. That's a real thing. 
right? That's, that's a Christian thing. We have to teach our children that a godly work ethic will take them further in life than lazy talent ever will. That's true in athletics. It's true in academics. It's true in the realm of religion. It's true in the realm of employment. I remember working at seminary in the library the Thursday night before the end of the semester, and a guy came in from one of the classes. He didn't know who I was, but I was one of the teaching, the, the teaching assistants, and he came in. And we were just talking to him, shooting the breeze or whatever. And it was an hour before closing time. He's like, hey, where's the section on, uh, on, I don't remember what the doctrine was, baptism or something. I said, oh, it's the second floor, you know, all towards the back. He said, all right, so you got something you're working on? He said, yeah, I got my, my uh, 15-page paper due tomorrow. I said, yeah? You're in Dr. Allison's class? Yeah, yeah. I'm the, t- I'm the grader for that class. Oh, yeah. You, you haven't started? Even any research yet? No, I'll throw something together. It'll be fine. It's like 8 o'clock at night, the night before it's due for an 8 o'clock class in the morning. All right, big guy. So I let him go. And I, as I thought about it, right, I'm like, I'm like Solomon walking past the house of a sluggard here. Like, you know, he may end up passing that class. And he did. He got a B or C on the paper. He passed. But that pattern played out in his church is going to be terrible, right? That's going to be miserable. He's going to, if he doesn't change, if that's how he handles the rest of his life, his wife is going to pull her hair out, right? And his congregation is going to want to strangle him. Faithfulness, even with less talent, will take you further in life than lazy A lazy, talented person ever will go. Right? Employers will overlook your laziness for a time if you've got great talent. But eventually, every employer will lose patience. They will fire the lazy employee, regardless of how talented they are. But a hard worker, in spite of having inferior talent, can excel in whatever their chosen field, and they can can reap the fruit of their diligence. Listen to some of the promises made in Proverbs to the diligent. Proverbs 12, 11 says that they will have plenty of bread, right? Diligent workers will have the things they need, unlike the sluggard who always lacks and is always craving. Proverbs 12, 24 says that the diligent will rule. They'll be put in positions of authority. They'll be trusted with responsibility because of their diligence, because they have proven themselves faithful, not because they're so eloquent, Right? Not because they got a 35 and a half on their ACT. Not because they're the geniuses, but because they've been diligent. Proverbs 13.4 says that the diligence soul, the soul of the diligent one, will be made fat. Which is a good thing back then, right? We don't want to be fat today. But it means their soul will be well fed. They'll be overflowing with spiritual sustenance. Which leads to my third and closing exhortation for tonight. Let us all be diligent in our spiritual work. Let us all be diligent in our spiritual work. Because there, if we're negligent, we will reap the most dangerous of consequences. Negligence in our spiritual work will reap the most dangerous of consequences. 
How many of us are excelling in our spiritual exercises? Right? Are we marked by clear progress in the things of God? Or are we like the sluggard, hinged to our bed, moving back and forth? We're showing movement, but making no progress. It's easy to do. It's easy to look busy doing God's work. It's easy to look busy and making no progress. I'm going to this service. I'm serving here. I'm listening to that podcast. I'm having lunch with that guy over here. I'm reading this book. I'm doing all this stuff, but in no way am I doing the hard work of soul tending. I'm just plucking the low-hanging fruit. Communion with God is the high-hanging fruit. That's what we need to go after. How many of us have memorized Scripture lately? Right? The last week? The last month? The last year? How about our prayer lives? Is it better than it was this time last year? Or are we just tossing and turning, making no progress. I know this, this is hard. This is a punch in the gut. I feel it too. Writing a sermon on laziness is convicting. But we all occasionally need a, a swift kick in the pants to get us headed back in the right direction, right? A little sleep, a little slumber. It's, it's easy to doze off. It's easy to drift. Slothfulness comes easy my sinful flesh makes it natural it's like laying down i don't have to do any work to lay down that's my normal it feels like my normal regular position standing up is hard doing work is hard spiritual vitality is hard it takes work we need to be reminded of what christ has come and done and what he has liberated us from what he has liberated us to and whom he has given to us. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit, who is, who is not a spirit of laziness, not a spirit of sluggardliness, but a spirit of fruitfulness, spirit of effectiveness, spirit of humility and meekness and love. And when we're reminded of what Christ has done for us, of his love for us, of his work on our behalf, then we're drawn by his spirit to redouble our efforts right to forsake to take off our sluggardly and indolent tendencies and to be spurred on to faithfulness in every area of our lives and like i said that doesn't mean we become workaholics for the kingdom of god but it means we continually strive to put to death our laziness and pride And we work for faithfulness and diligence for six days, and then we savor that seventh day. Right? That's when you can really enjoy rest, is when you've worked. Otherwise, we're just turning on our hinges. So as we conclude tonight, we have the blessed opportunity to taste the fruit of our diligent Christ. Right? He refused the temptation to sit around and idly do nothing but instead was faithful to the task that was given to him. He did the hard work. He sowed the seeds of righteousness that we might reap the harvest of acceptance before God. 
He's sown the seeds of his own diligence so that we might be forgiven of our laziness. He's sown the seeds of his own obedience that we might reap a harvest of sonship in the house of God. This table is a blessing and it's set for all of those that have come to Christ by faith. Those that are marked by the fruit of faithfulness we see in Acts 2. Those that are devoted to the apostolic teaching found in God's word. Those that are devoted to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And so if that's you, I invite you to join us tonight. If you have not yet come to Christ, if you've not yet been baptized, then I urge you to let this plate pass, to be reconciled to Christ first and to his church, and then to join us at the table of God. I'll say a prayer and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, I pray that you would work, that you would feed us and nourish us, that your Holy Spirit would be at work building up your church. Speak through these pictures of your gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Table